still a bottleneck for migration. For example, 500 million birds migrate through Palestine on annual migrations from Eurasia to Africa back and forth. You are listening to back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with Tony Crowsdale. On this episode, we're going to hear interviews about wildlife and what it's like to be someone who's into wildlife um, and some wildlife programming in Palestine. Last year, I was on a kick researching about sort of war and about war and urban wildlife activity, let's say, or urban wildlife observations. Um, and that's like what we're thinking of as like the final episode of what we're thinking of as the season um, will be us talking about some of that stuff that we researched or some of that, some of that stuff about um, urban wildlife observation and war, particularly in London during the Blitz and World War II. Um, also some stuff about Berlin immediately after the war and some stuff about Hiroshima of all places. And um, that got me thinking about places where there have been wars more recently. Uh, and that got me thinking about the Gaza Strip. I think Palestine had also been interesting to us because we'd done some stuff on Israeli topics. Uh, the Israeli swift story that we talked about in Wall Lizards, Wall Swifts, Wall Dolphins. Swifts nest on the Western Wall. They also nest in the Church of the Nativity. And I knew from conversations from that that swift conservationists and researchers in Israel collaborate with colleagues in Palestine. Um, and that just fundamentally, the flora and fauna and the habitats are the same, uh, but with vastly different socioeconomic situations defined by history, conflict, war, and occupation. So that sort of got us thinking about it and poking around every few months, looking up some more stuff and trying to find someone to talk to us. Uh, and it finally came through, and we got a couple great people to interview. In this episode, we're talking with Mazin Kumseya of the Palestine Museum of Natural History and Imad Atrash of the Palestine Wildlife Society. So my name is Mazin Kumseya. I'm a professor at Bethlehem and Birzeit Universities. Before that, I was a professor in the United States at places like Duke and Yale University. Yes, so uh, this museum uh, was established in Bethlehem um, with the mission that uh, involves education, uh, conservation, and research. Research actually is uh, what we started with, uh, primarily research about the dangers that affect our environment, the human impacts, the settlements, the colonization, the human uh, destruction of the habitats, and so forth. Education in terms of like uh, focusing especially on school children and uh, university students to try to get them to uh, to understand uh, the value of the environment around them and to uh, basically grow on their own. We provide an environment for their growth uh, here in Bethlehem, and so uh, it helps to produce environmental clubs at uh, schools and universities uh, which work to protect the environment and face the challenges that we face, which we can talk about a little later. But uh, that's basically what we do in terms of the uh, museum. It was started in 2014. The website is palestinenature.org, 
and people can look at it and understand more about what we do. Um, so what is the, I guess, the geographic reach of the museum? So just to put your uh, audience to understand where we are, we are in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the occupied uh, uh, Palestine. Palestine was occupied in 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel to uh, change a country that was multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural, and make it into a Jewish state of Israel. Uh, we are in the central part of Palestine. Um, what's left of Palestine basically now uh, are ghettos or bantustans like Gaza, Bethlehem, Ramallah, East Jerusalem, etc. And most Palestinians are refugees or displaced people in countries like Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, etc. Um, because of this disjoining activity and the apartheid system that we are subjected to, we are limited in our outreach efforts and the ability to move even from one ghetto to another, uh, let alone, uh, you know, do what we want to do in terms of environmental conservation. Uh, so basically, it's a very difficult political situation, if you want, or a geopolitical situation. Uh, but we do get some people visiting us and working with us, despite all these obstacles from various parts of the West Bank, like the Northern West Bank, and even from inside the Green Line, what is now considered the State of Israel, we do get some visitors. We ourselves cannot travel to those places like uh, Jerusalem or, or the Galilee, because we uh, Palestinians are cooped up in uh, smaller areas, but uh, but some people can come and visit us, and um, and they do visit us. When you're introducing, let's say, introducing school groups or university clubs to nature and to wildlife, what are the things that they get introduced to? I know that, I mean, you've lived in the Northeast in the United States and in the Southwest and I guess the South. Um, you're used to seeing squirrels and pigeons and um and I don't know, robins and all sorts of the, the things that are the backyard wildlife uh, in those parts of the United States. Um, what is the backyard wildlife like for a young nature lover in Bethlehem? Well, uh, you know, Bethlehem is part of the Fertile Crescent. It's one of the most rich, biodiverse, uh, natural, natural areas in the world for the attitude that we live in. This is the bottleneck, if you want. And it's still a bottleneck for migration. For example, 500 million birds migrate through Palestine on annual migrations from Eurasia to Africa, back and forth. So we have a very rich biodiverse area with a lot of animals, a lot of plants, uh, over 2,500 species of plants, for example, over 110 species of mammals, over 540 species of birds, uh, 110 species of reptiles, etc. So, so it's a very rich uh, biodiverse area. And we can talk about uh, the, the threats to this biodiversity, of course, but, uh, but still there are areas in Bethlehem, for example, uh, that are still very rich in some of these animals and plants. And and we even have uh, started developing ecotourism here uh, as a source of income for the local people. And this is what we are trying to do here, 
is ensure protection of what remains of this beautiful diverse area which is which was diverse in terms of natural history was diverse also in terms of peoples and cultures and languages and religions um, diversity is strength unfortunately there are people who want to destroy diversity and create all monolithic uh, states you know or monolithic cultures like a jewish state or a, a muslim state or this and that and and this is uh, not stable um, long term my my background is in mammals i wrote a book on the mammals of the holy land so i know most about mammals and more recently we started publishing on birds and reptiles and others but let, let's start with the mammals since we humans are mammals um, <laughs> we have of course uh, small mammals like rodents and bats we have 23 species of bats we have also larger mammals, including the ibex, the gazelles, uh, the uh, mountain deer that's in the, in the north. Uh, we have even leopards still existing, even though it's very dangerous around the Dead Sea, the uh, uh, Syrian leopard. Um, we have uh, the, uh, um, you know, the various uh, wild cat species, uh, the desert, we have the foxes, three species of foxes, the beautiful desert uh, foxes, like the Fennec Negev. Uh, we have, of course, mountain fox, which is common, vulpus vulpus, that's uh, present in... Yep, we got those too. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so we do have those kinds of diversities. Uh, just about every mammal that's larger than a rabbit here is endangered. Uh, we have an unusual animal called the hyrax. Uh, you don't have that there. It's, a, it's a, an animal, Procavia. It's from the family Procavidae, which is uh, Hyracoidae. The order is uh, an order of mammals that uh, the closest relatives of them are the elephants. <laughs> Uh, so we do have some unusual things in terms of mammals. In terms of birds, we, of course, have the very large birds, like the birds of prey, like the eagles and the uh, you know, vultures and things like that, which are all endangered. And the smallest bird here is the national bird of Palestine, which is the Palestinian sunbird. It's a beautiful bird. Uh, the male is uh, bluish, uh, uh, black, with a fluorescent uh, color and and have orange under tufts. And so it, it is really an amazing little bird uh, that we chose to be the, um, the emblem or the symbol for the museum also. Uh, so, so we do have those kinds of things. And uh, Can you see the bird at the, like, does it live around the museum? Yeah, and it's a, it's a bird like uh, the hummingbird, basically. It, it uh, feeds on nectar flowers. Uh, Etc. It's the smallest, tiniest bird in Palestine. Part of what we like to do in the podcast is not just talk about the nature in other cities, but to talk about the experiences of um, people like our listeners, nature lovers in other cities. If someone is used to birding in um, West Texas, or if someone's used to birding in in Raleigh Durham um, or New Haven. Uh, what would be different about all that if they were in Bethlehem? 
Well, I mean, the idea of Zionism from the beginning has been to transform Palestine and make it a Jewish state. The native people, as like the native people in North America, were not taken into account. And in fact, their lives and livelihoods uh, were destroyed, like the massive killing of the bison, for example. Millions of bison were destroyed. Uh, this is the idea of uh, colonialism, is an idea that's uh, contrary to native interests and also to animal and plant interests. Uh, so uh, because of this, uh, we have, uh, as native uh, indigenous people, uh, face uh, huge challenges in our livelihood. Palestinian uh, villages have lived in harmony with nature for thousands of years. Uh, for example, the oldest continuously inhabited town on earth is Jericho. And uh, for 11,000 years, continuously inhabited by people from our ancestors, the Canaanites, going back to the Natufian agricultural period, the first agriculture, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, now, if we look at Jericho, for example, Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. It faces huge, cha huge challenges. Uh, the people have been restricted in the smallest area possible of the Jericho environment. And so as a Palestinian, for example, I am sometimes allowed to get to Jericho, where there's a lot of very interesting bird species. Sometimes I'm not allowed to get there. But even if I am able to get there, I'm restricted to particular areas. I'm not allowed, for example, to come close to the Jordan River. This is basically what, what we face is a lack of freedom of movement. And, um, and, uh, but there are other challenges that we face. Uh, part of the function of the museum, as I mentioned, is to research these challenges. For example, we studied the effect of uh, the uh, uh, settlements, Israeli colonies built on Palestinian land. Uh, whether residential settlements, that's Jewish-only settlements, or, uh, or industrial Jewish settlements that dump their toxic waste on the Palestinian areas that produce environmental damage, uh, genotoxicity, for example, for human health, uh, that produces um, uh, isolation of animal and plant species, Israel is building massive walls now that impact movement of animals, not just people. Uh, these walls have already uprooted 1.5 million trees. And so there's a lot of environmental damage which we study, try to document, and try to deal with, uh, with amelioration, mitigation, and uh, things like that. With all the challenges that people face in Palestine, how do you get people to care about nature. Indeed, this is a huge challenge, and uh, scientific studies have shown that there's a direct correlation between a country's GDP and economic development and their environmental interests. So rich countries, uh, by, uh, uh, by definition, uh, care more about the environment than poorer countries or poorer economies. Um, and this is understandable, you know, if people are starving in Somalia or in Gaza, I don't expect them to not uh, hunt a bird, for example, or pick a wild plant and eat it. So, uh, so it's understandable at some level. So the question is how is really a huge challenge. And this is part of why we created this institute 
the Palestine Institute of Biodiversity and Sustainability um, and the museum itself is to think of uh, strategies that would work in developing countries and in, and even developing countries under occupation like us in Palestine um, and, and in other countries where there are stresses uh, due to politics. Um, and we did come up with some ideas, one of them, uh, which is to use permaculture methods to kind of wed environmental conservation to, uh, to the economy of the people. In other words, if we teach a person, even at a refugee camp here, uh, in Bethlehem we have three refugee camps, and we taught some refugees how to grow uh, herbs, for example, on the walls of the refugee camp, because they don't have land, uh, so we call it green walls. So the green walls and green roofs idea is an idea to grow vegetables and grow herbs and things like that, enhancing their economy while at the same time educating them about protecting the environment and stuff like that. So they start to make the link between a better e uh, economic situation, a little bit of extra income and a desperate situation basically, would at the same time protecting the environment. Um, but we are still exploring. I'm sure there are many, many ideas that we have not explored. I know you're about to head to England. You talk a little bit about your trip and where, if, if listeners in the UK would want to hear more about this, where they could go. So we would love to cooperate with people. We have a volunteer program. If people want to come and volunteer, we have a guest house uh, the, for volunteers. They can come. We provide them with uh, food and lodging. And uh, they can stay anywhere between three weeks to three months, if they like, in Palestine, learning the culture and the language and whatever they want to learn and, and developing their own skills and doing some projects around the garden or around permaculture or around the museum itself. So we welcome volunteerism. Uh, I, I go to trips. I went to the U.S. in July and now I'm coming to England. Uh, pretty much to ask people to come and join us and help us. They don't even have to come here if they want to volunteer. They can help us from where they are. Again, our website is palestinenature.org, and, uh, and there they can find details about how they may help. Uh, and it's a lot of fun, by the way. People who come here have, yeah, we have volunteers from everywhere. Uh, they learn from each other. We have like five volunteers now. Uh, from uh, England, uh, from uh, Germany, and from uh, Italy, and uh, the U.S., basically. <laughs> Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to your audience. And as I said, uh, we would love to cooperate. We would love to network if anybody is interested. You know, info at palestinenature.org, and we would love to network with your audience. Awesome. As, as potentially a little more political than we usually get. What do you think of that? It's hard to say because it's not what we're asking political questions. So not much more is this. I mean, how you can't really avoid it with this subject. You know, when you have people living in apartheid. And I, I did ask a couple questions of my God. I mean, I, I was kind of curious, like, all right, under occupation, what's it like to be a wildlife observer? Like, Yeah, I guess in my mind, like, it's not like, what's your opinion or your solu on the solution here? It's more just like... What's your experience? They're, they're in a 
occupation. So yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that not? And I think it's basically we can't get around it. So one thing we take for granted in Philadelphia is that, like Tony, if you hear about a bird somewhere, if it's a roseate spoonbill that's flying around the marshes of South Jersey, I literally did that on on Sunday. And you just did what? Went to another state and traveled 90 miles without any issue whatsoever. Exactly. If this episode tackles these things from a political dimension more explicitly, I think implicitly any aspect of human injustice and oppression is going to manifest in those relationships with the environment. You know, whether it's we're talking about, like, for example, also talking about, like, our real or perceived right to experience nature and belong in natural spaces. So thinking of Taiki's interview with the urban birder, we had in our urban birding episode. You listen to that, you'll hear themes that aren't about occupation per se, but are still about how people of color might feel belonging or exclusion in in birding specifically, but I'll say natural observation activities. I think of particularly Tony's work. I dabble in this stuff. It's what you do for a living. That when you guys are out there doing urban environmental education efforts with low income and minority youth in Philadelphia who don't often can get excluded either by means or by by the racial background from sort of the broader environmental movement and wildlife observation then when you're you know when you were Taiki or, or when Keith Russell um, or Robin Arasari up in North Philly uh, you know when you're on the way on the hand just like hey turning people on to nature but you're also countering sort of aspects of injustice in the way you're doing it yeah, but you know what? Both those, exa- you know, that example, you know, and how you're relating it to the interview, kind of brings up. It's weird how we're being political by not avoiding the the subject, you know, or just yeah. doing the right. You know, if we're if we're gonna interview, if we're gonna look at urban wildlife, of course we want to include this experience. Yeah, and we're not gonna dance around the problems there. And the same thing with. What I do, I'm just doing what I what, what, what the right thing to do. Like I'm, I'm just I'm not going out of my way to avoid people who need it. You know, so like yeah. you know, but yet it seems like you're like people act like it's this big charity thing I'm doing, and I'm like, no, this is this is a good. I have a, this is a good job, and you know, for me, this is a good a great thing for me as well. I'm just not choosing to work with what I perceive as an easier population. You know, yeah, like I'm just like not avoiding it and it's weird how just not avoiding either a tough subject matter or a community that you may perceive as being harder to work with or have be more challenged is is political when it's really just the right thing to do well yeah i think in our country that's how like that's a lot of how ways of exclusion manifests is in people doing the easier things and so when you stop when you you stop just letting yourself get channeled into the easy work yeah then that in of itself is a, I think of like a pro-justice kind of activity, even if it's not something you mean it to be. And like, I'll be, I'll be honest, like one of the things I was catching when I was listening to it, when I was interviewing these guys and then listening to them, um, is even if Mazin is, is a little bit more head on with the, the political dimensions of it and the limitations of occupation, it isn't like they're sitting there crying in their beer and like not doing anything. They're out there doing what just comes naturally, you know? I mean, they're both doing environmental education work. They're both doing environmental preservation work. But they're taking, I mean, they're taking school groups, you know, they're taking kids and school groups out looking at wildlife. And 
Imad Atrash, he didn't talk about it as a political act. He's just, you know, cultivating a network of citizen science wildlife observers. It's just kind of like what any of us would do. They're just doing it there. Ow! Citizen science! But in this world, <laughs> you know, it's, it seems like just doing the minimum seems to be radical anymore. Yeah. You know? Rush, Executive Director of Palestine Wildlife Society, Global uh, Ornithologist, Global Counselor of BirdLife International uh, until now, uh, interested in nature conservation, um, leading the nature conservation and uh, environmental education since 1992 in Palestine. Ecotourism uh, licensed guide by the Ministry of Tourism. And I enjoyed my life as a person in nature conservation as my hobby it was in the past. Uh, I used to be as a lab technician and assistant at Bethlehem University for 13 years. And I left the university, established a small program called Children for the Protection of Nature in Palestine and 92 till uh, 2000. And then uh, in 99, 2000, I established with my other colleagues, uh, Palestine Wildlife Society and uh, implementing many activities regarding our strategy as empowering people, uh, nature conservation, helping nature, sites, species, habitat, sustainable uh, environment, and just traveling all over the world, meeting people, learning from their experience in nature conservation, environmental education. On your website, I was just reading about the Lesser Kestrel. We did a good project for Lesser Kestrel, and now we are uh, trying to do a project of Lesser Spotted Eagle, actually. Okay, and the Kestrel struck me as interesting for the purposes of this podcast because it looks like they... They nest in um, old walls and, and human structures. Yes. It is uh, mostly in the open area, mostly in West Bank, and no records so far in Gaza. Open areas in uh, Jericho, Jerusalem wilderness, what they call it, uh, Judean desert. And in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, there is, uh, uh, I don't know if you have been uh, there or not, if you know Damascus Gate, it is, is uh, a cross-border area between East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, and it's nesting uh, on the roof of the old houses in East and West Jerusalem, actually, in that corner exactly. Wow. They call it Musrara. And this is one of the greatest hotspots for lesser kestrel, actually, uh, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in East and uh, West, and how to connect people by the lesser kestrel. In 2000, when we started our organization, uh, it was a globally threatened species because, oh, this is in 2000, because 
of the management of the threatened uh, species in all over the world by bird life, then the number of them now in- increasing in Europe, like Spain, now it's uh, quite good number, and uh, Europe. Actually, this is a species where located around the Mediterranean uh, in west and east. Uh, so uh, it is a Eurasian, let's say, migration species from Europe coming to uh, Asia, to Africa, and, uh, you know, it's connected area between the three continents, Europe, uh, Asia, and North Africa, as the Mediterranean basin. What are the kinds of things that someone living in a house with a small garden or something like that might see in a Palestinian city, let's say in Ramallah or Bethlehem or somewhere like that? There is, you know, quite good species at the moment. Many uh, of the songbirds around, like greenfinch, now it's resident in all year round and breeding, chiffchaff, warblers. Now this year, uh, in like an example, I'm living in Betzahor, which is close to Bethlehem. I saw there is many different species breeding at my backyard like bulbul, uh, like uh, Palestine sunbird, uh, jay, uh, mina, did I said black beard, black beard. Sure. What else, uh, greenfinch. Uh, this is a kind of birds around us actually. Very good number of uh, Indian reptile. It was also breeding in our area. And this is two uh, species, mina and barectyle, uh, was introduced by the Israelis uh, before one year, uh, uh, years ago. Ah. And now as resident and breeding in our backyards. Got it. You're someone who's, who's traveled internationally and, and has some way to compare, some basis to compare what it's like to be... Um, a, a Palestinian nature lover versus somewhere else. Um, what are the challenges of that? And how does uh, how easy is it to get around to, to follow species? Um, also, in, in terms of conservation work, um, how, does the, how does occupation, how, do, how does security tensions, how do those kind of things affect the experience of the natural world for Palestinians and conservation work? Uh, actually, this is a big story of success. Uh, when we started our, uh, you know, movement in 92, we established, we call it Children for the Protection of Nature in Palestine. We focused from the beginning on kids. Now, it was, as you know, uh, the peace process started in 1993. And then uh, the kids, the little kids and their family you know, allowed uh, to them to go to the field with me to do some of the natural walking trails. And we bought that time some of the pediculars. In 2000, when the second intifada, if you are familiar with that, the families start to say about me 
I am crazy because uh, that Israeli tanks around us and we are trying to go uh, with the little kids uh, to the field. So I said to them, you know, I hope that God will protect us, but uh, at least we will not sleep, we will go. But at the moment, even there is incubation, the natural walking trails, it's started in very good and high level uh, at the Palestinian youth level. Bird watching start to have in our Facebook. We have now uh, started from last March when we get the photographers to go to the wild, to Marsaba area to shoot the lesser kestrel. Since that time till now, every day, every day, there is tens of the photos of the birds, nature, flowers, flora and fauna, landscape, uh, start to show up in our Facebook from all of our uh, friends from West Bank and Gaza, which we train them. Now, the number of people who is interested in nature photography, let's say, or nature conservation, uh, it is there. It is success story, especially yeah, especially at the moment, we have many, many different groups going to the nature uh, by themselves and as a group, as individuals and groups going to the nature to take some photos uh, and uh, document. And uh, two years ago, we learned about observation.org and we established and our uh, State of Palestine page. Uh, and there is uh, the statistics there. It comes two years ago till now, around 23,000 of observation. Wow. More than 850 species uh, recorded uh, since that time till now. Wow. Now, the nature conservation start uh, to be uh, clear to our society, but there is, as you know, the black uh, market, it's there behind us, away from our eyes, dealing with the flora and fauna, or especially about the birds, the raptor and the uh, mammals. We've been, as myself and Palestine Wildlife Society since 95 till now, with the Palestinian uh, Authority, at the uh, education level, we put our nature conservation, environmental education concept in our curricula. We've been a part of the environmental law. Uh, we've been as technical and the advisor committee of the biodiversity strategic plan till now, since 95 till now. I'm proud of that because our experience, it's, it's there. And it's appear in all of the publications and documentations in Palestine, and especially in ecotourism also. We are uh, so far trained in the last year around 40 uh, tourist guides in ecotourism. 
with uh, a great support from the Ministry of Tourism. We are dealing with the official body like environmental, uh, like Ministry of Education, Agriculture, Environment, Tourism, local governors. You know, uh, we are respect, respectful organization from our official body and uh, other international organizations. Uh, you mentioned that you're that some of the folks that you're training are coming from Gaza, and that that's also a place where you're getting good, good bird observations. How do yes. things differ in terms of people getting out into nature in Gaza and, and conservation efforts there versus the, the West Bank? I am dealing with the local people in each of the sites. We did Im- implemented a project called it IBA, Important Bird Areas in Palestine, in West Bank and Gaza. Now, by uh, Skype, by uh, Viber, by uh, Messenger, by emails, we contact the people in, in Gaza and we train them on observation.org. And now we trained them, and I have a small group, around 10 people, males and females, actually uh, doing some of the very nice records and wildlife survey in Gaza. Now, the people to come over here, there is some of them passed by issued of the permits coming from Gaza to uh, Bethlehem and uh, Ramallah. And I've been uh, with them in the field. I trained some of them, but most of them, they are located in Gaza and they are never went out of Gaza. But okay. for the local people in West Bank, I have uh, trained around 200 uh, youth from six uh, univers- different universities. What is happening in in Gaza, which is somewhat more cut off, I guess, to wild patches or parks. For example, we've been reading articles about biodiversity and environmental pressures on Wadi Gaza. And we're just kind of curious from the conservation perspective, what you've seen or what your organization has seen. Wadi Gaza, also by email, I can send you a book, a field guide, where I wrote it in 2003. Uh, We did uh, I did with my team in Gaza since 95 up to 2003, and we publi- I published a book about Wadi Gaza. Now, in 2000, the previous Minister of Environment uh, declared Wadi Gaza as a uh, protected area or a nature reserve. Of course, it wasn't any criteria, official and professional criteria to declare it, okay? So the people were afraid of that uh, declaration and uh, start to implement many activities. There is two threats to Wadi Gaza, one from the Israelis and one from the Palestinians. One of the Israelis, when the floods and the other sewage water from the Israeli settlements uh, in uh, Sinai or in uh, Negev or uh, West Negev, it's uh, connected to Wadi Gaza 
and they throw the sewage water to Wadi Jazza. This is facts, not against the, the Israeli occupation, but this is a facts there because I've been in the eastern area of Wadi Gaza and I saw by myself uh, the uh, sewage water floods come, going or coming to Wadi Gaza. The second, uh, it is a dumping site now from the Palestinians. Palestinians, they are sending two things, the sewage water again to Wadi Gaza. Second, their dumps and rubbish to Wadi Gaza. Now, uh, this is, uh, of course, it is a shame on us and every single person here in our region because according to our wildlife survey and especially the bird migration, there is around 12, at least 12 global threatened species they are coming to Wadi Gaza. I don't want to say this is a Ramsar site, but it is a real wetland site and it should be protected 100% from all over things where, you know, damage the site itself. And this is after our project with UNDB on 2000, the Ministry of Environment get from the UNDB also a project around 3.4 million of US dollars to create this nature reserve. But, of course, within all this, uh, you know, challenge and the threats, everyone, everything was collab uh, from uh, what we were planned. I uh, really uh, feel very sad about Wadi Gaza because it is one of the greatest sites here in Palestine. And there is another issue also, uh, that the quails, as you know, they are migrant, migrant from uh, Cyprus, from uh, Italy, and the, when they come to to the shore in Gaza, and especially in autumn time now, they are putting uh, mist nets from Beit Lahia, north of uh, Gaza, down to Rafah all the 40 kilometer or the 24 for 25 miles, they are putting their uh, mist nets to collect the most important birds, which is they are flying in evening time. We have a wildlife corner. Uh, it's a wildlife sanctuary, but a very small one located in Beit Sahur near Bethlehem. Uh, we are trying to educate our key people and our kids in nature conservation and animal welfare, actually. Okay. And, and uh, yes, and this is as exchange program. If you are interested or if there is some availability for this uh, ideas, we are so glad and happy to start this cooperation. Thank you very much for talking. That's good. Very good. Thank you for the invitation also to talk to you. Lesser kestrels. That's something that came up when Robin was talking about Rome. I don't think he saw some, but you yeah, were asking about them. Too. Yeah. Was that the Colosseum you were asking about them? Yeah. I mean, but the regular are the 
the Eurasian kestrel also nests in man-made structures too. Yeah. So fact, like, there's actually a documentary about one I think nesting in Sweden. It's really in a t- church tower in Sweden. It's really cool. Okay, but like both of them, in any case. But when you're, this is like one of the fun dimensions of the Swift story we did. Like we're looking at Swifts in the Western Wall. When you're when you're talking about like birds nesting in old human structures in Palestine and in Israel, like we're talking about some of the oldest, the longest inhabited places on Earth. I mean Jericho. He mentions the, and sort of the the walls around Jerusalem. I mean, so you've got these birds that have likely been nesting on old walls for the past who knows three thousand, three and a half thousand years. Yeah, um, look pretty good Van Gogh walls of Jericho. A pretty good what? Like punky hardcore Van Gogh walls of Jericho. <laughs> I feel like it's not an episode if you haven't managed to. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> to connect something we've said to a hardcore band name. Um, so that's pretty much the episode. You know, we hope you like it. I want to find some people actually in Gaza to talk to. I've reached out. I haven't got anyone to write me back. So if you know anybody in Gaza and wants to talk about the wildlife they check out there, let me know. There's one author who keeps popping up, Abdel Fattah um, N. Abid. Rabu or Rabu, I'm probably mangling that name horribly. But this guy like churns out wildlife articles from Gaza, and he's at the Islamic University of Gaza uh, Department of Biology. And then I sort of stalked him on Facebook and found like a neat little thing he was like posting on Facebook about one of his students' work doing plant surveys in old cemeteries in Gaza. Mm. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, old cemeteries. Yeah, <laughs> we love old cemeteries. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. If you like the episode, what should you do, Tony? You should like us. You should uh, give us a review, preferably a good one. That's right. Uh, you should tweet about us. You should tell your friends. You should um, contact us and holler at us and tell us what you like, what you didn't like. We love corresponding with our listeners. If you study urban wildlife in any capacity, we will interview you for the podcast. <laughs> Pretty no, much. There's, there's no way we wouldn't, right? Yeah. So just get in touch. So again, thanks for listening. Thanks to Mazin Kumsiya and Imad Atrash for talking with us. Mazin is going to be traveling in the UK and talking over there, so keep an eye out um, for his appearances in the United Kingdom. You know, if you're making it to Israel or to Palestine, make sure you stop by the Palestine Natural History Museum or Stop by, the wild, stop by the Wildlife Society, find yourself an eco-guide, um, and go check out some nature over there. Uh, thanks. Thank you. I've been in Bethlehem, actually, eating uh, our lunch uh, when we visited uh, the Hook Mountain Sanctuary. Wait, you've been to Bethlehem in Pennsylvania? Yes, I've been uh, having lunch there. That's where my wife is from. She went. To, she grew up in. in it's, this is one of the funny things when I've been doing this research in the Palestinian stuff. Is is we've been joking, you know. I'm, I've, I'm reading about the other. I mean, the original Bethlehem, and <laughs> she's from the yes. Pennsylvania Bethlehem. Yeah, and uh, it's Philadelphia, one of the quiet places which I like it. I saw Philadelphia once in autumn. Ah. With a, 
many multi-colors of the trees. Yes. And Un I unbelievable view in my life. That's view of Philadelphia trees when it was in autumn.